Welcome to season three of the Jesus Said Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Hey, Em. Well, hey, I thought, wait, I thought I was doing the intro this time. No, you weren't. Are you doing? No. I don't know. Hey, no. Brett. Hey. Hey, hey girl. <laughs> hey. What you doing right now? You you always have a clever intro question or something. So that's um, true. I, didn't I know, normally do, but I didn't see, know today I'm trying to throw you off your game, mm. and you don't know what's happening. Why? Because it is freaking snowing. It is sleeting. It is. It's negative forty thousand degrees here in Waco, Texas. Well, okay. So I will tell our listeners this because of the cold, and we don't know what to do with it. But I follow all of these accounts on Instagram. I'm learning about cold immersion and how good it is for you. And I know this terrifies you, Brett. I know that you're like, what is my wife going to try to ask me to do? But one of our mutual friends and band members is willing to go into the lake and do a polar plunge with me when it's negative three next Tuesday here. Do you want to come right now? Okay, I'm going to come to it for sure. But I need to I need to say this. Wait, you're going to go... when you. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I don't. I haven't decided if I'm going to plunge with you. Oh, I'm going to come okay. watch you plunge. But I will say this: you did show me an account <laughs> a couple of months ago, and you said, "Hey, I want you to look at this. I'm intrigued by this." And it is a guy with really long hair who is very witchy and all into all the things of crystals and earth. And well, that he's like brother, a male sexuality specialist. He's like a or sexual witch or something. But he's he, not a it, sex witch. No, he, but whatever. But he said he's into that. He did say that. Well, he, he said might that. be because I now I follow him. He because might it's like be, Brett. it's like I can't quit looking, but I keep I know, looking because I just right? can't quit looking because it's. But anyways, my point is it. he's in Vancouver. And True. he cuts, he goes to lakes and he cuts Cut, holes yes. into the frozen lake. This is a thing. And that bull jumps in the water naked and he yes. doesn't care who's around. And then he and lets he out a primal in, scream. And then he lets this out a primal scream. <laughs> and I'm, it's like you can't look away, but you no. should look away. No, and you shouldn't. You shouldn't look away. Because of Instagram's the nudity clause. Well, you know, they he's real, take care of that for you. But you still see his butt. And so now I'm like, are you watching this because you like to look at the guy's butt? I don't no. even know what's happening. I mean... No, so all of that to say, I will I will come plunge with you. You'll plunge. Did I you say j- that? You just said you would. I'm not. At, I'm not doing this thing naked. I'm not being weird <laughs> about it. I'm just saying there is scientific data that's proven that cold immersion is good for us. It's anti-inflammatory. It's antidepressive. Depressant. It's like a natural. Anyway. Yeah. Tuesday. Yeah, because it puts you into hypothermia. Look out. It puts you to sleep so you don't feel anything. That's how <laughs> okay. it's anti all the things. Well, I hope you don't go to sleep on this podcast. How's that for a transition? Because we have a really excited, <laughs> we're really excited to have a, this guest on our show. I've been following our guest um, probably for over, I think over a year now. I know it was before 2020, but then again, 2020 is lost on me. Man, it was a time warp. Um and 
Oshita Moore joins us today. Yay. Yay. She is an everyday peacemaker. Um, she does anti-racism work. She is an Anabaptist pastor. And I'm so excited for us to learn about um, racism, women's voices, particularly black women's voices in faith communities, and where we're at as the church um, really takes a turn in 2021. My hope is that the church is taking a turn, and I cannot wait to hear uh, her wisdom. So welcome. Yes. Thanks for having me. I was trying so hard to not laugh. <laughs> You could <laughs> Listen, Oshie, I, I know. And here's the thing, Ashita: we don't script anything. We that's just, true. We never know what we're going to talk about or what's going to come out of this mouth, and that's the beauty of this space: is we can just be who like, we are. I was listening to you guys. You know those BuzzFeed quizzes where it's like, what kind, like, what, what character in Harry Potter are you? Like, whatever. Like, there's like one, like, what kind of witch are you? And it's like, house witch, like, garden witch. Da, da, da. And I'm like, they, now they'd have to add sex You're witch. You're a sex witch. <laughs> We're not afraid to talk about these things, right? I guess not. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously, um, <laughs> we won't we won't ask you to go there on the podcast. Okay, good. Thanks. <laughs> I actually think the Liturgist podcast had... A sex witch on their podcast. That so is true. But there that's is a, topic a whole, for another day. That's a topic for another. That, yeah, that's another rabbit trail. Right, <laughs> but you are here because you are doing some really incredible work in the world, and I am so excited to learn from you. So tell our listeners, like, who are you? Where are you coming to us from? As we meet in this virtual listening space. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so my name's Oshita. I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's my favorite place in the world. Wow. I've lived, I live, I've, I'm originally from Southeast Texas. I met my husband in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Uh, well, we were, I like to say we met during Mardi That's Gras fun. just to see how the people's reactions, <laughs> but we were actually like on the street doing evangelism. Oh, and yes. Tracks, oh. Like getting bum, thrown bum, up bum. on. Change the narrative. That whole thing. I love it. So I like to see if people like expect me to say like, yeah, I was flashing my husband. Uh-huh. He threw me <laughs> together 20 years later, but no, we were there for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then we were there until Hurricane Katrina evacuated. Mm-hmm. And we moved to Boston where my husband went to seminary, then LA for a little while. And now we're here. And um, it's my favorite place. Mm-hmm. I know I don't want to ever leave Minnesota. Wow. Um, I have obviously am married. Mm-hmm. My husband is a pastor of a small, sweet little community. We're about seventy or eighty people. And then I pastor at another church. Um, I'm outreach and teaching pastor. One of the teaching pastors at Woodland Hills, mm-hmm. which is a larger church, probably roughly between like seven hundred and a thousand people. Mm-hmm. Um, so two ends of like the mid, like the church spectrum. Um, we have three teenagers our oldest just turned 18 oh ours too congrats really yes. is it okay so he turned he turned 18 in time to vote and i was like this is so weird that is weird like i know yeah ours it's well ours weird. actually it's, turns 18 in march so okay but some of her that. classmates were old enough to vote this year we had conversations around I the know. dinner table about this yeah it is strange because I'm like, so you're an adult, yeah. but you're not. But you're anyway. So yeah, and then I have a 15 year old and a 14 yeah. year old. They're 11 months apart. Um, and I've been writing and teaching online for like 10, mm-hmm. 10 or 12 years. Um, I, I got into it because we were church planting, and 
that's what they tell you to do is like tell everybody all your business mm-hmm. so you raise some money and get the people. <laughs> um, but then I actually realized I didn't care about writing about church planting mm-hmm. or my life as a church planter's wife very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I really was passionate about the Hebraic concept of shalom and was finding that I was living it out in interesting and accessible ways mm-hmm. in my life. And I just wanted to kind of make the idea of being a peacemaker um, from the Sermon on the Mount like realistic for us because I don't think Jesus just says things for the hell of it. Mm-hmm. Ooh, can we cuss here? Totally. Uh, we just <laughs> talked about sex wishes. Yes. You're, yeah, okay, good. you're good. Um, and so, yeah. And so I was like, you know, what it like that whole, that Shane Claiborne, yeah. what if Jesus actually meant it yeah. kind of thing. And so I really um, started writing about Shalom and everyday peacemaking and kind of flourishing out of that. You know, I'm a black woman mm-hmm. um, and a, and a, an Anabaptist black woman, so it's a predominantly white denomination, or at least denominantly denom- predominantly white mm-hmm. in its leadership. Um, and so for me, figuring out shalom meant I had to figure out a way to be at peace in this body, and God didn't make a mistake in making me black. Mm-hmm. And so I had to um, start talking about race and the intersection between peacemaking and race more, because I really do have a framework that says I I love my enemies and I define my enemy as the person who's right on the other side of my empathy. And as a black woman, it's very easy for me to view other white people, white people as my enemy, especially when I've been hurt as many times as I have been um, in predominantly white Mm -hmm. uh, church spaces. And so that's kind of how my anti-racism work began. Mm -hmm. I was just like, Hey, I'm black and I'm a peacemaker and I'm choosing to love my white brothers and sisters. I'm choosing to love myself. And then it just kind of bloomed into this thing where now I, I have all I have uh, this like thousands of people who identify themselves as white peacemakers, yeah. um, and I write some encouragement to them on Instagram, yeah, and do. I'm writing a book for them, yeah. and that's kind of where I am. And, and I'm I'm one who's benefited from your words and from your wisdom and from your courage, really, because um, you you don't have to do this work, you know, you don't you don't owe us anything, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, but yet you've you've chosen to step into this space and to lead and to teach. And, and it's, it is such a gift um, that a lot of us can really, really learn from. I'm so excited for your book to be coming out. We'll talk about that soon. Can you first talk to us? What is Anabaptist, right? Where does that denomination come from? Define that. So Anabaptism is not, a denomination per se. Anabaptism is more of a kind of a theological framework. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might run into somebody who would identify, you'll probably more run into people who would identify as neo-Anabaptists, like Anabaptists who um, like they've maybe left their, their denomination or they're still a part of their denomination, but they hold on to Anabaptist views. And so um, Anabaptists uh, are... So they often get confused with like the Amish mm-hmm. or they often get confused with like Quakers. Mennonite. It's primarily mm-hmm. Mennonite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's primarily because there's, uh, for, to be an Anabaptist, there's just some key kind of ways that we read the Bible. So we read the Bible through a Jesus-centered lens. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we read it as a narrative. Uh, like everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the person of Jesus and everything. And then Jesus comes on the scene and then he models for us how to live life. And then um, and then the rest of the Bible is us watching the disciples in the early church actually like try to live into Jesus' mm-hmm. teachings and, and reflect Jesus. So for me, uh, so so. Because because that is such an important part of the of the Anabaptist theological framework, then 
then like things like when Jesus says, like turn the other cheek mm. or love your enemies um, or like when Jesus models healing mm. while he's being arrested to go to the cross, mm. like these, these kind of like dramatic, nonviolent, um, deeply rooted in sacrificial love um, practices or expressions. These are, are a huge part of uh, how I think about my faith and how I live mm-hmm. into my discipleship of Jesus. Mm. And then there's some other things like um, multi-voice is a part of the Anabaptist core convictions, which means um, we make space for different voices um, and different people, especially people from the margins. Um, There's a huge emphasis on priesthood of all believers, which basically means like we trust the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we trust that um, if you have a gift of leadership, even if it's not like the kind of leadership that we would, that we in this Western context or think is like the sexy, Mm -hmm. you know, attractive kind of leadership but like if you have a uh, if you have a a gifting and an ability in a certain area we we invite you to live into that and we and we honor you as this in the same way that we would honor like the senior Mm -hmm. pastor so you will find in a lot of anabaptist church there's a there's a large leadership team so like in woodland there's 11 pastors and it's because we all kind of bring our what God has gifted us, we bring that to kind of the collective. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the Avengers, yeah. <laughs> like all kind of come together. Um, and so, so the, that that like breakdown of hierarchy or that like division or spread of the giftings and of the authority is a, is a huge aspect of Anabaptist um, tradition. And then, and and so we and and like we have modern leaders like now, like um, that a lot of people think of like Greg Boyd as the mm-hmm. senior pastor of the church I'm at. So I mean, he is a lead pastor, but like, that's just because it's hard to like, when you talk to people, like um, it's hard to just say like, well, there's 11 pastors at my church. So there is a, there is a lead pastor. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of, if you spend time with our pastoral team, you see like we all make decisions together. Uh-huh. Um, and so there's people like Greg Boyd, who we learn from um, Shane Claiborne, mm-hmm. Brexit Cavey, Brian Zahn, mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. So that's that's Anabaptism. And did your I could go on and on, but yeah. did your <laughs> husband? So is your church that you pastor at an Anabaptist? Does it share that theological framework, or is that just your personal framework? So Woodland would say that they are that they are more Anabaptist. Mm-hmm. They and so they have this. So yeah, so they they would they would identify as a mostly Anabaptist community because of a major shift that Greg kind of took the church okay. on, moving away from oh here's another part of Anabaptism empire critique. Mm. So uh, there's it's a there's a very strong uh, we have a strong con- core conviction that um, that we are the conscience of empire. Mm. So like we don't get sucked into finding our identity and we don't like, uh, we, we would never hear like an Anabaptist say like they're a patriot. Um, we have a very like critical eye for like Christian nationalism yeah. um, because we recognize that when Jesus came, he said the kingdom of God has come near, which means like we are ambassadors of mm. the kingdom of God. So you'll hear that language a lot in Anabaptist um, spaces. So Greg took Woodland on that journey mm-hmm. of being like, "Hey, we're not going to, we're not going to be conscri- conscripted to either side. Like that's not, we're not going to do that. We're going to focus on um, our calling and our capacity to reflect the kingdom of God values mm-hmm. right where we are." Um, wow. And so yeah, we'll let me say that my husband is. Uh, ordained with the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination. And that's partly because when he was in seminary, one of his favorite teachers was a covenant pastor. Mm -hmm. And so he went on a journey 
doing that. Mm-hmm. And so the church he pastors is Evangelical Covenant. But this is where, you know, my husband would say he's Neo-Anabaptist. Mm-hmm. I would say I'm Neo-Anabaptist because he still is a part of a denomination mm-hmm. and he loves his denomination for the most part. Yeah. Um, but but because of the denomination that he chose, he has freedom to integrate some of the core values of Anabaptism in his teachings. Okay. So. I just love learning this part of, of just church uh yeah, theological frameworks, and I'm not, I don't spend my time in academia, you know, my ministry is, and our ministry is one born of the streets and music, and so we really um, weren't in that headspace formation, but part of the, part of the reckoning with what's happening in the evangelical church, which is where we spent most of our time, is that um, we're, we're all as, as people who have associated as evangelicals, are having to reckon with our faith. Um, and that's part of where this conversation comes in because even as you're speaking, I'm like, well, all that just sounds like right. <laughs> all that just <laughs> sounds like what we're supposed to be doing. And what a lot of people think they're probably a part of when they're going to certain churches, they think they're following the words and the way of Jesus. But then sometimes once you get in there, you realize I'm being sold a bill of Christian nationalism or white supremacy that I didn't realize I was signing on for. And then you lose your belonging in that place. I mean, many, we have women who've lost friends and, and whole spaces, um, because of, of that reckoning. Um, did you did you always grow up with this theological kind of framework as a basis and foundation for your ministry? No. So I, I grew up, um, so my mom was Southern Baptist and my dad was Assembly of God. So I was literally going to uh, Sunday school at the Southern Baptist Church and then going to like big service, like church service at the AG Church until both of my parents kind of, um, kind of, uh, deconstructed their faith and just realized that going to church was not for them. And then I just continued to go to the Assembly of God church and the bus would come pick me up in the whole thing. Mm. So I was not raised in this tradition. I, I am, I, I am the child of, uh, of Vietnam vet mm. and he did two tours in Vietnam. And wow. so I saw, um, I saw his untreated PTSD yeah. from war. Um, and so I had a strong nonviolent streak in me already mm. Which, if you're if you're a Christian in Texas, in Texas, it's uh, nonviolence is not something you talk about. Yeah. Actually, like there, like for me, um, I grew up with kind of a very us and them narrative. Yes. So I would go to these conferences, and it would be like, "We are the people of God, and we are doing everything right, and the world is uh-huh. disgusting." And like, don't be like them, but then somehow like love them enough to make them want to be like <laughs> us. And it was right. like. And so I always found, like, I had a cognitive dissonance between, like, the violent um, kind of tribalistic language of the church, especially the church in the South, because because I I saw, like, I, I don't know, I guess, if, I don't know why I was able to connect these two, but I saw, like, my dad went through extreme trauma yeah. because of, like, violence. And so, like, any kind of violent language or, like, us and them language just was a didn't feel Christ-like to me, mm-hmm. yet these people were so loving. And I think this is where a lot of us, a lot of people when I talk to, they're like, I can't leave my church. Mm-hmm. Like, even though, like, 
my pastor is not talking about the things that are important to me mm. or I'm going through this deconstruction. Like the people there I love so much, like they're so good to me. Yeah. And like they've been a part of my life in these massive, important ways. Cause that's exactly where I was. Like the people in my life I loved so much, but they never talked about race. And yet I was a black person yeah. in my church going through issues of race. I there was a kind of a violent mm. sort of like um like you know like alpha Jesus mm-hmm. kind of like like narrative or spirit in that church and the way they talked about our faith that really didn't like sit well with me because I'm like looking at Jesus and I'm like, but he like straight up like died on a cross, you know? Like, <laughs> um, so when my husband and I got to New Orleans, so uh, we did urban ministry there. Mm-hmm. And that's when we started exploring Anabaptism, primarily because we were working with gang affiliated youth. Okay. And so we were trying to figure out how do we teach them nonviolence mm-hmm. as a part, as an expression of our faith or like uh, a, a, as an alternative way right. of living. And I, I, if somebody asked me like, what would you like in a core, like in a sentence, what would you describe and how would you describe Anabaptism? I would say, well, you know how Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Mm-hmm. So, like, we have heard it said that we need power, we need we need violence, or we need um, we need power over mm-hmm. energy, or we or we need to we need to define us against them. Like we have heard those narratives, but Jesus gives us another narrative: this narrative of loving others, of dying to ourselves, of mm-hmm. um, of offering gentle responses, offering true responses too, because Jesus did both. Like there's another way. And so um, you might hear Anabaptists call that third way. So that's kind of like TC and I, my husband and I, that's how we got into it. It was like, really, how do we understand nonviolence? And then when we saw like nonviolence is so deeply woven into scripture, Mm -hmm. even sometimes even in the new, in the old Testament, when we think it's so violent, we realized, Oh, okay. Like, like that is, that's kind of the core value, and that's when we stopped spanking our kids. Mm-hmm. That's um, that's when we had a lot of like deep conversations about just dismantling violence within, within mm-hmm. ourselves. And then we kind of just moved into like, okay, then what does this theology mean? Who are the people we should follow and yeah. listen to and learn from? And then we, you know, we started wholeheartedly calling ourselves Neo Anabaptists. So much so that my son was like at school like a few years ago, and somebody was like. Or no, he works at Starbucks. He was at Starbucks. And um, somebody was like, he said, yeah, my dad's a pastor because I think they said something. And he was like, the guy was like, oh, my, and my son was like, well, my dad's like not like that kind of pastor. Like he, he like believes this and believes this. He was like going down. He was like, and he's an Anabaptist. Which, and, and I was like, <laughs> he's picking okay. up on it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I yeah. love it. Um, and where, okay, so along this road of your, because your first book is called Shalom Sisters, and then you had a podcast called Shalom Y'all, which is talking about bringing peace, living as a peacemaker among the brokenness, among a broken world. Um, I may have said that wrong, but you've, you've yeah. got this concept of, of Shalom, and here you are as a peacemaker, as an everyday peacemaker, and all of these ordinary ways um, that you are going about living the way that that Jesus teaches and as a black woman mm-hmm. at what point in that journey um, or, or was it straight from the beginning did you feel resistance to this message um, number one because of our culture that it's so prone to violence but number two, 
as a black woman or were those two things, did they come together at all? Was the resistance that you were feeling toward the narrative, toward the theology, toward the mm-hmm. practices, or did you experience it? Um, yeah. How did you experience it as a woman of color? Yeah, that's a good question. Thanks for asking Emily. Um, you know, I have been all, all over, you know, uh, it's, I like to say that um, anti-racism work is is racial healing. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're healing a, a a deep deep wound, and healing is never linear. And so I have had, and that's not mine. I lots of trauma therapists say this: healing is yeah. healing is never linear. So I have been all over the board mm-hmm. with how I feel as a black woman mm-hmm. doing this work. Um, when I first started. Um, the very first thing I wrote about race was because I was a part of a writing group and they were like, write your hard thing mm-hmm. and post it somewhere where people can read it. And my hard thing was that I sometimes wish I was white mm-hmm. because I have, I see the ease of being right. a white woman. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes wish um, that. And mm-hmm. so I never got into this work um, with this big desire to teach first. Mm-hmm. I got into this work because I wanted to be honest about like how race uh, how I interact with race mm. as a black woman. And so I, don't, I, I, I find it funny that people call me an anti-racism educator because I really don't feel like I am. I feel like I'm more like a storyteller mm. or an encourager because I, I've started this work by saying like, yeah, I'm black and this is how I experience our current culture that is deeply influenced by white supremacy. Mm. Um, it's only as I started, like the more I kind of like, share my stuff like Laura Tremaine has a book out right now like like uh tell share your stuff I'll Mm -hmm. go first or something like that the more I started going first and being like this is how I experience race then white women Mm -hmm. mostly white women would start responding to me and being like oh I have questions about this or I never knew about this and then I would study a little bit and then give them an answer and kind of found myself in the space of like walking alongside them and that's when I really had to work on um you know, do I really love my enemy? And am I able to t- keep my heart tender enough mm-hmm. to have empathy for them? Am I able to still stay patient? Because that's a huge part of doing this work as a black woman, especially a black woman who loves white, who's called to love white people. Mm-hmm. I don't know any other way to say that. <laughs> I, every time I say it, it feels like Sesame Street, yeah. Mr. Rogers, so ridiculous. We need but right I just now. said that's where I am right now. Um, but as I did that, as I started to do this work, I really did have to work through my own like anger. And I started the book actually talking about this trip that I went on where I took a group of white people down south to go to civil rights museums mm-hmm. and different landmarks around anti-racism and our country's history yeah. with racism. And I just uh, I start the story talking about um, how I was recognizing the violence that I was seeing was becoming a, was I was internalizing it. Yeah. And like having a, a hard heart towards white people, and um, and so yeah, so I've been there, um, and I also be, I've been on the side of like how some people interpret teaching anti-racism, which is just like white people, you're the worst, mm. you know, like like own that you're a racist. I I have a personal, and this is tied into my um, like enemy love mm. 
ethos or my neighbor love mm-hmm. ethos is I don't call white people racist mm. because that word has too much baggage and I want to remind myself and them that they're beloved. Mm. So I don't, I say um, white people are influenced by racist ideas or white people are influenced by white supremacy, but I never call them racist. Um, but some anti-racism teachers just go straight, like they go there and they kind of utilize um, that language to get white people to move along. And that just doesn't, feel right for me mm. so I've really had to try to find my way to where I'm more um in this kind of like pastoral com- like space when mm. I talk about anti-racism with white people but I really have like it really is deeply influenced by the tradition I'm a part of yeah it's a really long answer to your oh, question oh it's I, beautiful wow. I had like wow. three questions that just came out of it but I'm going to give Brett a chance to ask his questions because I I have them lined up like all day I long I know I'm just sitting here <laughs> listening and like Tell me, like, even the, I, I love that you said that I don't refer to white people as racist. And, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, as a white man, I've heard that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, and I think, I, I think on some levels it's, it is correct. Yes. But I think the reason why it is, it, it is so offensive to hear is because it's like, well, how do I get out from under that label? Like, it's almost like that's a label versus, whereas, you know, a, a white person who's been influenced by white supremacy. Okay, now I can I can sit down at the table and really learn from someone if that's what we're talking about. But it's like the moment you put a label on someone, it's like, I mean, I work with um, sex buyers, and one of their biggest things is how long am I going to be called a sex buyer? Mm. And same thing with our women. It's like how long am I going to be a stripper or a prostitute or it, and so we put these labels on people, and I think that almost clouds healthy discussion. And mm-hmm. so I just, man, thank you for that because that, I mean, I, I think that's a big deal. Language is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I think by you even inviting someone to the table, by not labeling them, but still expressing you've been influenced by this, there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I think that's a gift to the discussion. And to yeah. to own, I think it helps me to own my racism when I can say I have ascribed to racist ideology. I was I recognize now racism in my upbringing. I re- recognize racism here. I recognize where I contributed to it. I recognize where my standing by instead of standing up was a contribution. Yeah. Um, to racism and that that does feel different than saying you know i'm i'm a racist even if i have been racist in my language right yeah yeah well i mean i as for me the shift was it actually happened for me in marriage counseling like seven years ago because we my husband and i were like he's an eight on the enneagram i'm a two if anybody knows anything about brett's an eight like I'm a one. So, um, and we were just fighting all the time, fighting, fighting, fighting. And our therapist said, well, what if you guys acted like the the, prob- the thing you're fighting about is not in each other, it's outside of you. And you two are like coming together and being like, what is this thing we're trying to like mm. trying to deal with? Like, what if it's you guys against the thing, not you guys against each other? Mm-hmm. And that is the picture that I have for us, you know, Dr. King talks about the beloved community mm. and the beloved community is this community where we 
we we own our belovedness and then we proclaim mm-hmm. our belovedness we proclaim belovedness to each other and then we create this community where we are we are upholding each other's belovedness and making sure that systems around the world do that as well well, I can't call you beloved if I think that you're the problem. Yeah. But if I can say, like, you're beloved too, I'm beloved, and there's this thing out here that prevents us from both being our full beloved, mm. like full belovedness or living into that, like, now we can say, like, okay, like, we are both deeply influenced by this, me in different ways than you, for sure. Like, I'm not saying, like, a white person's experience or influenced by white supremacy is the same as a person of color. Like, it is very, it is different because of the nature of white supremacy. But it still affects you. Like when I see a white person who is in a shame spiral because they don't know how to get out because they feel the weight of, of, of racism, but it just feels so overwhelming. Like that is a deep effect of white supremacy mm-hmm. that should should activate an empathy response in me mm-hmm. and not a judgmental or self-righteous response. Mm-hmm. And so, um, And so, yeah, the picture I always have is like, I am beloved, you are beloved, we are beloved. We're the beloved community. But white supremacy is constantly at our heels trying to rob us of that belovedness. Mm. You know, I, I it reminds me of some of my experience in early ministry with the charismatic church. Um, we've kind of been all over in several different settings. And so my understanding originally of the prophetic um, was very much tied to... Um, demonstrations of the spirit, whether it was speaking in tongues or healing or walking through a fire tunnel and falling down. I mean, it just prophetic language was language that, um, you know, had some sort of like immediate results. And it was language that almost affirmed. um, It was like, it was language that was like for me to say I have this prophetic word for you was like calling out your worst self. Yes. And yes. what I understand <laughs> now about the prophetic is that some of the most the, the prophetic way that Jesus lived was he prophesied of the belovedness. He prophesied mm-hmm. to the woman at the well. I I already know who you are. I, yeah. I know who you are. And here, you know, taking the drink from her. And I just think sometimes the most prophetic thing that we can do is call people to who they truly are rather than um, calling it prophecy to shame people yeah, and yeah. to see some sort of deliverance or result. Yeah. And um, I think that echoes in what you're saying, that if we can call our white brothers and sisters into this conversation by saying racism actually hurts all of us and all of us are worth more than what we've been handed down in terms of racism and look at how beloved we are. Can we live in a way that expresses that? It's just such a different conversation. It it is. And I know, like, Brett had things to say, but <laughs> I'm going to say this one thing. It is. and I, But I think, too, like, uh, you know, that we need all. We need all the voices. So we do need black leaders that are like, this is wrong. Y'all need to yes. see, like, how wrong this is. Like, we, need, we do need those stark voices, like those activism voices that activate us, that move us to the work. We also need voices that are more like mine that are like okay so I'm gonna walk alongside like that was a lot you just took in a lot like so 
so like now let's like talk about that and figure out like what do we do from here and I think that like when I wrote my book that was the hardest thing for me to do is because I was looking at the landscape of all the books out there and anti-racism and they kind of had two sort of like really distinct voices of like here's all the stuff you need to know yeah and like here's all the things you're doing wrong and those and I think those are those are two kind of helpful approaches to kind of get you going mm. um and I saw a lot of people buying these kind of books yeah um but like I care I'm really interested in, in like do you have what it takes to do this for the long term right like, can you sustain yourself in this work and so that's why that's that's why maybe for another um, anti-racism teacher, it's important for them to say like, no, 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 white people need to like say that they're racist. Like they need to they need to have that shock mm-hmm. value. Well, where for me, my my approach is like, well, um, I think you're influenced. I, I, like I want them to understand like the system yeah. that are influenced by white supremacy and how they have participated and been a part of that, even. Um, even unknowingly, yeah. like it's maybe even passed down in your like family narrative that we do certain things this way. And there's actually like race, like roots of racism mm. or influences of racism in that. And that's not your, that's not your fault. And I, mm. and so anyway, yeah. mm. Mm. it's so you're like a, a tender surgeon there. Um, I think with that kind of approach, I can kind of get, as an Enneagram one, since you've mentioned the Enneagram, I can get pretty dualistic and be like, whoop, it's bad. I was over here. Now I'm over there. And you know what? And I, I'm also like learner is one of my top five strengths. I mean, I want to learn it all and learn where I'm wrong and you're wrong. And so we're going to fix it. You know what? I think that's why we kind of got in that little fight the other night. when You and me? We were talking. Yeah, me and you. <laughs> I've never been in a fight with Oshita. Right, that's true. (laughs) But when you and I, we were on that date night and we were talking about, you know, buying Hattie a car, buying you, we were trying to buy somebody a car. We're talking about paternalism. What are, what are, yeah. And and my response was out of kindness and you slapped it with, you're just being misogynistic. No, I didn't say misogynistic. I said paternalistic. Well, what's the difference? It's all the same. See, that's where you got to go read some book, more books. It's not the same. I just feel overwhelmed as a white man. I was saying that women historically, anyway, that's another conversation, but... I'm just kidding. I'm just yes, kidding. It, it is true. No, this is fun. I like to see other other couples do this kind of stuff because it makes me feel normal. You but know, no, my, and- my, my point of bringing this up, though, is your response was, it was, it was just, it is what it is, whereas my receiving of it was, well, crap, how do I... I was just trying to be kind. You're like, I'm not... Yeah misogynistic i'm not paternalistic and i was like it's not about you i'm not saying that as an individual i'm not saying you are being that to me i'm saying that's a very paternalistic viewpoint and the way you're going about it so yeah it was like we were having those conversations where i think part of what's so hard for people to accept when we're talking about whether it's patriarchy or racism or whatever it is you know, it becomes for many white people so individualized and so personalized. Mm-hmm. So per- yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And I do think it takes an empathy and a tenderness to say, number one, I'm not making this about you as an individual. Hold on. I have my daughter getting ice from the ice machine and it's like loud. Hold on. This is going to cause me to have to do some edits. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want me to say something? Do you want me to make a big loud noise so you know where the edit no, is? No, I already, I already marked it. I saw you it coming. It. And you got yeah, Star- Did do- you get fresh Starbucks? My husband just came in from work. That's why I was texting him because he, he works with court, court involved youth. And so he just took one of his youth to do something. And I was like, you are, I see, I can tell, I see you. <laughs> like, I see that you're by a Starbucks. <laughs> okay. She's almost done with the drawers in this vein. Um, Okay, you good, Hat? Okay. So, where does it come from for white people to individualize and personalize everything? Is that a human problem, though? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a human problem. So, again, in my book, um, but I, I, I go through the Sermon on the Mount as a way of exposing characteristics of white supremacy culture. Um, and individualism, like high individualism, is one of the characteristics of white supremacy culture. Because you kind of have to. You kind of have to be. My dog is being <laughs> You kind of have to. You know, um, this is my land. This is this. These are my crops. These are my slaves. Mm-hmm. Like this is our this is our inheritance. Mm-hmm. Like there's like a very like, and that's really also it's like so deeply into like the American dream. Mm-hmm. You know, um, which whatever. I, I'm, I'm not going to chase that rabbit trail down but um but yeah so i think that i think individual but i mean i'm i'm i struggle with individualism mm. too i just think that it's kind of a little bit of the no not a little bit it's a lot of the air we breathe and especially in the in the in the evangelical church which i i still um i i still have a lot of love and, affin- yeah. and affinity for the evangelical church yeah. like it's 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 where i first met jesus right but we use language like my personal relationship with Jesus right. um, or we read Psalms that were written to a group of people and we read that as like my personal like Psalm for the day, yeah. you know, like there's a very, um, you know, there's a, there is a very individualistic part of a lot of our initial formation with our faith. So it does make sense that like when we try to like grow in these other areas, we kind of have to do that like spirit check of like am i making this more about me am i over personalizing this like because racism is a is a systemic thing right it's individual and it's systemic but we often when i often pastor or walk alongside white people we're we're, we're getting for we're getting past that those those first few hurdles we're getting past are the individualizing or the making it personal mm-hmm. so this is where like if i'm counseling somebody she's like i just can't do enough like i feel so stressed out but I'm, now you're gonna have to do more editing, Brett. I kind of like I'm, it; it's charming. I'm here for it, Shh, guys. Hold on. Guys, I'm. I know. Okay. Um, I know it's just so extra. Y'all are so extra. We have a big um, dog too, and my. Yeah. I have a little dog who thinks he's a big oh, dog. Yeah, that's. I was gonna say that was not a big dog bark. Um. What I was saying was, like, when somebody feels like, I just can't do it, I'm like, yeah, because you're over, like, you're making it all about you. Like, like you can't, there's no way one single person is going to yes. completely dismantle racism. That's just not going to happen. If that could have happened, like, it would have happened with, with like, Abraham Lincoln uh-huh. or something, you know. Uh-huh. So. Okay. On a spiritual kind of turn, I, I want to ask, because you've talked about, you know, I really recognized or felt or experienced that I was having a hard heart. Um, how do you know 
when your heart is hard, how do you Mm. personally, how do you know that? What did those moments of change, transformation, those shifts where God was speaking to you, how how can you evaluate your own heart? Hmm. Well, it's like what Brett was saying, language matters. And so like um, the language I use about people in my my mind is is usually the first Mm. indicator that my heart is hardened. So, you know, if I catch myself saying like they're the worst or like today somebody really ticked me off and I was like texting my husband and I was like just saying all of the like angry things I felt about the person and I was like saying Mm. saying things about them that I was like I would never say this to their face but like it's I'm so angry about it like I recognize oh my heart is my heart is getting hard Mm. toward that person so I I have to find a safe safe place in person like my husband and just get it all out Mm -hmm. so it doesn't like it doesn't uh it doesn't become a root of bitterness in me um but I also kind of need to do some work and and remember their humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, during the election of 2016, mm-hmm. um, I spent some. I, I spent several days like looking at Trump, um, especially right after Charleston mm-hmm. when he made that comment mm-hmm. about very fine people on either side, which was deeply offensive to me. <sighs> watching all the things that I that we saw, I mean, I spent some time looking at pictures of him as like a young boy and as a teenager. Like I would Google those pictures and try to find even pictures of him with his dad because I know he had a tumultuous relationship with his dad just like anything I could do to like humanize him and remind me that there's like that he was once an innocent child and, he, and, and to God he's still like a beloved child wow. um so I I kind of do that check if I if I know that I'm in a I'm in a relationship with somebody that is particularly trying and my heart is hardening then I do these active things of like trying to humanize them um so that I can finally get to that place where um I can say in my mind like they are beloved who is like dancing on my very last nerve right mm-hmm. now or <laughs> they are beloved who is tweeting the most offensive thing and if, and so I just kind of do that work mm-hmm. um and I I do credit my tradition because of nonviolence is such a huge part of what we believe in in teaching me to integrate that into my discipleship um I also like I have a, a high value for anger. Mm-hmm. Like I really like think anger is an important emotion mm-hmm. to pay attention to mm-hmm. and to make space to express. And mm-hmm. so like I literally like the other day, my daughter and I like went for a drive at 11 o'clock at night. And I was like, so there's this thing that I do sometimes where like I, I say like everyone needs to release some steam. Everyone needs to scream. And then I scream mm-hmm. like I just do this thing. And I like I'm feeling like you need some of that. I'm feeling like I need some of that. So like we're going to drive and scream. <laughs> Um, and we did. Like, we drove a scream, then we went to McDonald's and got her a chocolate shake. And so I feel like also, yes. <laughs> we, there's, it's important to make space to, to fully feel those, those emotions that if you don't allow yourself to work through them, then you can internalize. And then um, you'll, start a, uh, you'll start connecting that person to those feelings. Mm-hmm. And then you'll start treating that person as less than human. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like peacemaking... Or when I teach peacemaking, I say that peacemaking is the work of rehumanizing mm. those who have been dehumanized. And so that is, that's exactly the way that I approach my anti-racism work. How has white supremacy dehumanized us? So then how can I do the work to rehumanize us? And I rehumanize is not my word. I, I learned it from a nonprofit that 
uses the, the idea of rehumanizing mm-hmm. um, others. Mm. I love that. So language is an indicator of hard heart. And so checking, being attuned to the language that you're using um, yeah. would be a way that we can evaluate kind of our heart space. And then visualizing the individual that maybe you have angst against or unforgiveness, bitterness, anger toward visualizing them as a child, which is really beautiful. That's, that's a but really, but I have to confess that's hard because oh, I'm yeah. sitting here, I'm visualizing so some people mm-hmm. in my own life. Yeah. That's some work. It is some work and I'm not there. And that's the other thing too, is I, like when I talk about this, pe- people always kind of have the same reaction that you have. Or like, wow, that's really beautiful. And I'm like, it is the absolute hardest thing, and I don't do it like, like you'll like seven times out of ten, like on a good yeah good day when I'm like working through something with a person. Like there's those three other times, and I just say like the absolute worst thing mm. I could possibly say about them, and then I, um, but I, uh, I, I have seen the way that or I have allowed myself to have a hard heart towards people mm-hmm. and kind of just, uh, and I've seen the way that when I interact with them, I can tell, like I can tell. And even if, cause I'm, I, cause I, because I am a two in the Enneagram, I know my vice is that I'm like charming and like people mm-hmm. like me and I want people to like me. And so like when people meet me, mm-hmm. I, I like, or if I'm interacting with somebody and I have a problem with them, they will probably never know because I'm really, really good yeah. at like, not emoting that I have a huge problem mm. with you, but I know in my heart. And so I've, I've experienced enough of those instances where I felt duplicitous mm. and I felt like a hypocrite. And I was like, and I'm like, I can't, I don't want to live in that space. And so, and also like, I'm committed to this work for my life. Yeah. So just because I haven't figured it out now, or I still have issues and I'm working through, I mean, there are people still in my life who I'm like, oh, it's really hard for mm. me to view them as beloved but I'm committed to trying. Yeah. And I think that's really the only thing Jesus asks us to do. Like discipleship is the commitment to continue trying and yes. staying in it and to not giving up. Yes. So. so language, checking your language, visualizing the person as a child and valuing, visualizing their humanity. And then I love yeah. the outlet for anger that you expressed too. It is so important. Anger is such an indicator. And usually anger is an indicator of where injustice occurred um, somewhere, even even if it's yeah. uh, disproportionate to, you know, your anger is disproportionate to the hurt in whichever way, yeah. and it comes out sideways, it, it is an indicator that somewhere we're mad at something somehow that's happened. But what you're not yeah. saying is that the work of nonviolence is about subjecting yourself to continued abuse. No, so, I'm not saying So that. I just want to make that distinction as we have so many listeners who come from um, a, a traumatic childhood who've experienced abuse on a sexual level, spiritual abuse. Yeah. Um, you know, the work of, of nonviolence and humanization doesn't mean that you devalue yourself so yeah. that others feel more powerful. <laughs> um, no. And safety, of course, yeah. you know, being safe. Um, so I, anyway, I just wanted to make that distinction in case anyone is in an abusive relationship or has been in an, with an abusive family member, your priority yeah. is your safety first. 
Um, and then you get to work with professionals and a community, hopefully of faith that can help you walk through that. Right. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not honoring my belovedness if I am dehumanizing myself in order to make you more human, like, or more, more beloved. Like that's, um, and so I'm glad that you said that because I think that is something that pacifists, Christian non-pacifists Christian pacifists or Christian non-violent, violent, um, those who believe in Christian nonviolence, we get that like, oh, you're a doormat yeah. or, oh, like, and especially like as a black woman, mm-hmm. if we're, we're going to talk about it from this social location. Yeah. One person ta- said, well, you don't teach cruciformity, which is that concept of Jesus going to the cross uh-huh. and sacrificial love. Like you don't teach that to people who are actively being like oppressed and suffering. Like you don't teach that to them. And to that, I'm like a hundred percent. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like you, there is a reckon there's a i recognize that like you cannot force somebody you cannot say to somebody who's suffering oh now you need to suffer even more to look like jesus um and somebody and so for me like it's a choice that i make because i have i have the community and i have the health and i have the and i know like i'm i am doing this from a healthy safe place Mm. i'm choosing to love you Mm -hmm. and so i feel like I like I I feel like it's really important and so I'm glad Mm -hmm. that you said that to say like I love you enough to not allow you to keep hurting me because I'm honoring my own beloved my own image of God like the Imago Dei within me um yeah as far as where we are now in 2021 and because you care about the church you've devoted your life to the work of faith communities you are a pastor um your husband's a pastor. You guys are very, um, you're not just criticizing the church as someone who's not involved in it. You are very proximate to, um, to the Christian faith. I mean, you, you're devoted to it. Where do you see in 2021, how we make this turn? Because I, it does feel for sure 2016 to 2020, um, revealed a lot in in the American Christian faith community. What did you see through this time? And then as we turn, what is your hope for where we go from here? So the two words that come to my mind are reckoning and repentance. Um, like we just had a massive reckoning, not of where the church has been silenced mm-hmm. and how the church has um, been responsible for upholding oppressive systems. And I'm not just saying only around anti around racism. There's a, there are several oppressive systems that the church has held up. Um, and I think that what I'm encouraged by is that as the church, as those in the church have come awake and they are actually doing the work of reckoning, which is not just recognizing, but like getting into it mm-hmm. and like understanding it. Um, I've been encouraged that people are motivated to, um, to, to dismantle those oppressive systems. What I'm concerned about is that there is not a clear understanding of repentance and reconciliation mm. and how what often happens in the church because we we often have a picture of Jesus as only meek and mild and only gentle and good. Um, that we forget that Jesus said like um, like that he came he comes with a sword. Mm. 
Um, and we forget the times when Jesus spoke prophetically and angrily toward those who are upholding oppressive systems of their day. Um, Jesus required um, repentance. Mm. And he required, um, and that that is an important first, uh, important step to actual reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So what I'm seeing now is I see a lot of people, a lot of church leaders get really excited about this idea of like the middle or um, unity mm. or common common ground or common good mm-hmm. or um, without having done a significant rep- repair yeah. and repenting. Um, and I think we need to see, we need to enter into not just a moment, which we kind of had around George Floyd. Mm-hmm. We need to enter into a season and let the spirit like guide us uh, through that season of lament, yeah. of saying we have messed up. Mm-hmm. Like we have messed up in major ways. Mm-hmm. We have hurt our brothers and sisters in these ways. Mm-hmm. And um, and we are willing to listen to them to find out what they need mm-hmm. for there to be repair. And I think that is what that's the corner that I hope the church can turn. Mm-hmm. I don't have I mean, I know that and, and this is the thing, I see pockets of believers who are doing this. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I my prayer is that we see that those pockets kind of grow and get bigger and have more influence and we see more more people who have big churches or larger followings mm. to do that work of like I'm reckoning and I am repenting and I am doing my work to repair. Mm. Um and Resma Menachem, which is a trauma therapist here in the Twin Cities, he said something, and this is around racism, um, but he said, um, you know, the kind of change we want to see around anti-racism, we will probably not see for another three to five years, three, three to five generations. Mm. Um, and so what we're doing now is we're laying the groundwork for the kind of future we want our grandchildren and great-grandchildren to yeah. live into. And so, you know, that repair... That repentance, that's not going to be an overnight thing um, because these systems have been fortified for years and years and years. And so we have to be faithful and patient to do the work. And I think that's that's my concern is um, how the church can keep that to the fore of their mind, Mm. that we are we're actively doing the work of dismantling brick by brick. Mm. So why did you write your book, Dear white peacemakers well i wrote it because it's it's a it's um i wrote it because one i want to remember that white people are important in this work um and so dear white peacemakers for me is a shift from white people Mm -hmm. um just like calling out white people Mm -hmm. and i think if you look online or you know there's like white people do better white people da 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 and so for me, it was a it was a conscious shift to say, dear, because you're important to me. Mm-hmm. White, because it's important for you to know your social location. That's a that's a concept that says like you are placed in the specific context you're in and the body that you have, whatever like with the disability or the the ethnicity that you're you are like um, you're placed in a certain time Mm -hmm. like a certain time a certain place like so your location and then like so where you are how you relate to others like your social who you are how you relate to others so your social location so like my social location is i am a black woman who lives in 
the Midwest mm-hmm. um, in an interracial marriage. Mm-hmm. So it was important for me for white people to be able to say white mm-hmm. and say like that's a part of who I am. Mm-hmm. God didn't make a mistake in make mm-hmm. in in you know placing me in this location and saying like that's that that that's a reality. Mm-hmm. Like so to kind of like take away the sting of of saying of identifying or recognizing that you're white. Yeah, and you experience this you experience this world as a white person and because this world is influenced by white supremacy, there are certain things that you benefit from that you don't even realize. And there are certain things that you're vulnerable to that you don't even realize. Mm-hmm. And then peacemakers, for me, that was a shift from people just because um, uh-huh. I want to view white people as, I want to view those who are doing this work mm-hmm. um, as equal to me mm-hmm. and as working towards the, the good of the beloved community. Mm-hmm. And so it's important for me to, to call that over you like, over you so kind of like what you were saying Emily earlier like it's a prophetic even if you don't even think that you're doing the work of peacemaking because mm. you're just starting this work I see that potential mm. and that to recognize the anti-racism work is not just oh I'm I'm woke now or like you know right. I go to this con- I go to this protest or yeah. now I'm posting on the right days but like I am actually doing the work of peacemaking yeah. when I speak out against systems of racial oppression yeah what are, I've been thinking just a lot about this, especially over the past um, few years as I've dug even deeper into the work of anti-racism. What do you think are some of the major systems that everyday peacemakers, um, what would you say are those things that you can do as a uh, entrepreneur, as a uh, spender, as a mom, um, as a husband, I mean, as a business owner, as a board member, as a nonprofit executive or volunteer, what are just some really practical ways that you would say, this is how you can make peace every single day? Yeah. Well, I had, I'm nervous to answer this question because I have a high view of like the ministry of the Holy Spirit mm. that will guide you where you are. But also, I try. I, I I want to. I want to honor people's specific locations to say like how mom might dismantle white supremacy mm. might look different than like uh, the executive director of a nonprofit. But I think here are some here's here are the first like few things that just off the top mm-hmm. of my head that I think we all can do. So I think all of us need to be aware of who we're listening to. Okay. Meaning, are we in? Our, are we only learning from people who look like us, mm. who have, who can spend money like we can, mm. who have had similar experiences mm. to us? I mean, I I have a very close friend um, who is grieving right now over the uptick in. Asian American yes. violence. We were just talking. That's about not that. something I. Yeah, that's not something that I. Um, that I can that I've paid attention to because that's not my experience, right. and so it's important for me to be like, okay, I need to be listening to my Asian American brothers and sisters right now. Like, what's going on? Yeah. And how? And so, um, and that's the second thing is, look at who you're learning. Look at who you're listening to, but then also um, commit to learning from them mm. and letting them take the lead. Mm. Um, and that and and so that can look a bunch of different ways. You know, if you're a mom scrolling through Instagram and you read something from a woman of color that says like, "Hey, this is like what is really happening." Like taking the lead, letting them take the lead in that moment is believing them. 
oh. saying like, yeah, that's that's an actual thing. Right. Like, I I don't I don't have to do, uh, deflect this conversation to like, oh, I don't believe that, or that's not my experience of that. Like, well, that didn't happen the, here. Believing them, that doesn't happen uh-huh. here. Or <laughs> I know, you know. Um, so that's the second thing is you know letting people of color letting letting them take the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I, I kind of want to nuance that a little bit because I think. What in my experience has been is sometimes I've been a part of organizations that are like, oh, we have women of color or people of color in leadership and that and it's like, look, see, like they they're the chief diversity officer uh-huh. or whatever. But then like behind the scenes, you kind of learn that like that person of color will like say two or three things. It's like we need to change this and nothing really changes. Yeah. So they're just there to make the organization look great. Yeah. But there's no real change. Mm-hmm. So when I say, like, believe them and let them take the lead, that also means, like, allow for there to be change that's going to make you uncomfortable. Um, I think we all can do a better job at um, in the ways that we talk to our children Mm -hmm. about history and about even the history of the land that we live on. So um, I think that our children, unless they're in a particularly unique school, um, and or they have like a teacher who's passionate about this. They're not going to get um, full pictures of like what actually happened right. in order for us to be at the be the where we are right now. Yeah. So just being a just having a, a an eye to say, um, or an ear and eye to kind of be aware to to discern mm. how maybe our, how the kind of narratives our children are receiving that are influenced by systems of oppression that have that are that actually like them receiving that narrative and them holding that Mm. story is actually fortifying Mm. upholding that system so i think we can all do a better job of that and and that really does mean like we have to learn so they can learn and um so yeah i think those are the the first few things Mm. that kind of come to my mind it it really is deeply rooted in just a humility and willingness to learn also i think and i don't i don't know where this fits in, but I just feel like it's really important to just, the stakes are high. Dr. King says urgency of now, like we need to do it, but to also have self-compassion and to just know like, this is really, really hard Mm -hmm. work. Like you're working through a lot of betrayal and a lot of unlearning and you just got to like be great, be patient with yourself Mm -hmm. that you're not going to get it all right the first time mm-hmm. or the fifth time you know? yeah so yeah so much wisdom there and I didn't ask you um if you would do this I didn't I didn't ask this before so feel free to say no and we can just chop chop and get to somewhere else but I'm just wondering if um a friend a girlfriend of mine actually just bought Sarah Bessie's new book which you're a contributor of the rhythm yeah. Rhythm of prayer is that what it's called? Yeah, um, rhythms of prayer. Rhythms yeah. of prayer. A, a, a rhythm, a rhythm of prayer. And um, I noticed you were a contributor to it, and I just thought, you know, when, when you talk about this move of the spirit and really listening to the spirit, prayer is obviously one of those ways that we do that. Um, what do you, what do you think is important for us as people of faith to remember about prayer? And about how prayer uh, contributes to the work of anti-racism. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. if you feel comfortable, would you lead us in one? 
Sure. So do you want me to lead you in the prayer from the book or just a prayer in general? Oh, just a prayer in general. Okay. Yeah, okay, I mean, cool, it, I was like, <laughs> no, I don't have the book with me. I mean, I don't know if you um, do. No, it's funny because uh, <laughs> I don't know. You can edit this out, but like contributors, <laughs> like many of us don't even have our copies. Yet. Right. <laughs> no. Because of like news, mail travel and all that. Um, okay. So let me, let me get my brain. Give me a second yeah. to kind of think about prayer. Just the work, I think the prayer, prayer, the work of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, for a person of faith for whom prayer is meaningful, I'll start that way because I know there's a lot of us who have difficult relationships with prayer. Um, and I, I and let me just tell you what I think when, when I think of prayer, I think of it as I'm just thinking in front of God. Mm. I'm just thinking about something in front of God. Um, I've had to t- to strip away a lot of the expectations and the mystical, not mystical. I love mysticism. Mm-hmm. Like the, I love, I love the mystics, but like the magical manipulative, like I'm praying for this Lord. You got to do this thing. Yes. Like I've, I've had to kind of strip away a lot of that to where I now view prayer as thinking about what's important. Mm. Just thinking in front of God, mm-hmm. like God, you're here. And I'm thinking, um, so prayer for me and the work of anti-racism is really, really important because part of prayer for me is doing that mind check of how am I thinking about mm. white people or how am I thinking about my native brothers or sisters or am I am I allowing myself to um, to experience the pain of my Asian American brothers and sisters mm. right now or um, like when the women who uh, the when when I found out that there were women at the border who were being forced to have hysterectomy, right. I was like, "Am I am I am I in touch with that pain? Am I allowing myself to be in touch with that pain?" And that's that's prayer, like that that like sitting and thinking about that and inviting the spirit to be like, Oof. like that's prayer. Um, and so I think prayer is um, prayer is in a lot of ways for me the birthplace of my empathy. Mm. Because if I can, if I pray and I'm recognizing that I'm speaking to somebody who is infinitely wiser mm. than me, who has bigger, deeper, wider, more expansive perspective than I ever will have, um, who's omni-resourceful, if I can kind of make my recognize that, um, and that God is in a relationship and having a conversation with me, like that, that kind of is a, springs this empathy or this this reception of his kindness and empathy towards me that makes me want to offer it to others. So um, I think prayer is really, really important. I also think prayer is important in that when I talk about we're influenced by systems of white supremacy, I also am thinking about Ephesians 6 that says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Mm. but principalities and powers. And Walter Wink is somebody who's done a lot of work in talking about looking at institutions Mm. and saying like, Our current ideas and institutions um, are similar to what Paul is talking about, principalities and powers. Um, And we see principalities and powers of oppression and violence and da-da-da being influenced in these spaces. And that's how people are continuing to be oppressed. Um, So Walter Wink has done some work around this. So when I'm actually praying, too, I'm praying against, like I'm doing, I'm trying to do, trying to do spiritual warfare Mm. and coming out of the the background I come into, like come out of like that feels like a weighty thing, but I'm praying around an awareness for those principalities and powers. And I'm actually praying, like I want to see those things um, 
come crashing down. Mm-hmm. And I want to do my part. I'm going to do whatever small part. Like, give me my one of the five stones that I can, like, hurl at mm. Goliath. Like, just tell me. Um, and, and so prayer is one of those places where I do that work and I invite God to show me. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I think prayer is really, really important for those who have found a lot of comfort in prayer in mm. other parts of their life, too. Mm-hmm. So. I appreciate that so much. Um, Brett, if you have another question, <laughs> now's your chance. Because I've Brett. just... Oh, no. <laughs> you women, y'all just... <laughs> you're just going. And I think that's great. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I know. I mean, you usually on these podcasts, you you jump in where, where you want to jump in. So, um, Oshita, it's just... It's truly just an honor to get to learn from you, to get to talk to you. And before we close out, your new book comes out May the 18th. Where can, can we pre-order it right now? Yeah. Sorry. I didn't lead you in a prayer. No, we'll do that. We'll do that after this. Yeah, we'll do it then. Okay. (laughs) I was like, Oh, I did all that like theological, like, Oh, it was so good. No. Um, yeah. So dear white peacemakers comes out May 18th. It was supposed to come out earlier this year. But then the book completely changed when George Floyd was murdered and uh, just took on, like, I, I had written the book mostly. And then I went to my editor and was like, uh, it's, it's going to be a different right. book. Um, because we, I, my husband and I were really involved in a lot of the things that happened here in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Um, but it comes out May 18th. Um, I'm, and I'm about to start building the, uh, the, uh, launch team if Yay. anybody wants to read the book ahead of time and then I'm about to put together some pre-order kind of goodies I did this thing right after the lockdown started called breath prayers on my Instagram uh-huh. account um morning breath prayers yes. and it was this really great time of people just coming together and praying and so one of the pre-order goodies is going to be a collection of breath prayers specifically for white peacemakers so oh. when this happens here is a breath prayer for you to pray in that moment each of my chapters in the book already end with a suggested breath prayer okay. based on what that chapter was about but these will be you know a, a few more for mm. like some really specific instances um yeah and it's i'm really i'm I'm really nervous and I'm really excited is uh, my friend is a doula uh, or a midwife. And she was like, yeah, you, you like you birthed this book. I watched you. It was a lot. I was like, yeah, it was a lot. A lot of labor. So, wow. Yeah. And so you can find Oshita at on Instagram. She's very active. Like she said, um, her yeah. breath par- prayers during lockdown actually were awesome because we, our family of five had COVID and during oh, wow. the summer, and um and I remember. Do you notice? Do you notice every time you say COVID, I cough. <laughs> You're just remembering. It's it's empathy. The body keeps the score, right? Yeah, Boy, yeah. The body keeps the score. Oh, that yes. <laughs> um, and yeah, the breath prayers were really a gift I think to your Instagram followers so you're on Instagram you're active there and then if you want to pre-order the book can you just go on Amazon or yeah just go on Amazon um depending on when this releases uh there'll be some updated stuff over there when you go but I think you can like right now it says temporarily out of stock Uh so you might want to check again but if you want the book ahead of time like find me on Instagram and maybe join my launch team the launch that's exciting I love this. It feels so weird to say that. I know. Being an author. You're you're big time. You're big time. That's what it is. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, we are really grateful to have you. Would you lead us in any kind of prayer? It can be a breath prayer that, that you've done. It can, it can be anything. Um, for those of us who want to join, yeah. Yeah, let's just close in prayer. Actually, if it's okay with you, I'm going to lead you in this prayer from Howard Thurman, mm. which is one of my favorite theologians. Um, he actually was, he wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. Mm. And, um, and Dr. King said that he carried Jesus and the Disinherited and the Bible with him everywhere he went. Um, he's kind of, people think of him as like the mystic or the pastor of the civil rights movement. Um, mm. And he's just one of my favorite thinkers. I So I would love to close this in this prayer called Open Unto Me, mm. if that's okay. That'd be wonderful. All right. Okay, so, Lord, Lord, open unto me. Open unto me light for my darkness. Open unto me courage for my fear. Open unto me hope for my despair. Open unto me peace for my turmoil. Open unto me joy for my sorrow. Open unto me strength for my weakness. Open unto me wisdom for my confusion. Open unto me forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me tenderness for my toughness. Open unto me love for my hates. Open unto me thyself for myself. Lord, Lord, open unto me. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful prayer. Thanks for joining us. We hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment. For more info on our work, visit JesusSaidLove.com. Until next time. Share the love.